Thank you, William, uh, for praying. Uh, I almost feel like it's fitting that he prayed for me. I should pray for him that he could find another team to support. Um, <laughs> but no. We're going to be talking today, this morning, we're going to be talking about unity. And, and one of the amazing things about unity is that unity produces remarkable results. If you've looked around the world, if you've seen different uh, people, different things, and you've noticed their unity, it's usually because you've seen it produce something remarkable. As Dr. Sayer started our service, this morning is the anniversary for 9-11. And 9-11 is one of those dates, as, as Dr. Sayer said, where if you were old enough, you remember where you were when you found out. Many things happened in the chaos following the attack, but one of the most incredible things was the unity found in this country. All of a sudden, so many things that caused us to be disunited before, all of a sudden, those things were, didn't matter. And there was a unity that was found here. And as has happened at different points in this nation's history, the, and the people were united, they shared in this common bond, it produced some remarkable results. Now, I'm not going to get into the politics of what those results were. I'm not going to get into the merit of if those results were good and bad. But if as a casual observer, as later in the history books, they are remarkable. The things that were accomplished in the weeks and years following 9-11, all of the changes were massive changes. And they would not have been possible if there was not unity. That's not just for 9-11. We can look at, back at other times in this nation's history. Again, Dr. Sayer referenced Pearl Harbor. When the United States entered the war, there was a unity among this nation so that there were things that were accomplished because of that unity. How many stories do we hear of, of war gardens or kids going around and getting pieces of tin foil or aluminum in order to help the war effort where people on this side here were going without so that the men on the other side would have everything they needed? There was a unity and it produced remarkable things. But we don't have to just think about war or, or, or tragedy. We can see unity even with, with other areas. For example, uh, right now, the NFL just started. So you've seen different uh, people wearing sports jerseys. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people wearing green, but we knew that this was the house of God, so we didn't wear an actual jersey, unlike the Steelers. Uh, no, um. <laughs> but if you ask us a sports fan... What team wins? It's often not the most talented team. You can have a team that is immensely talented, but then you also come with immense personalities, and there's disunity, and they're not the team that wins. Often the team that wins is the team that has unity. When you start seeing star players throw each other under the bus, you know nothing good is going to come out of it. That's like... 90% of the plot of most sports movies. 
There was a team. They were divided. Enter this coach, and he had his different ways, and he did these different things that people weren't expected, and he made this team that was separate into one unit, and then they go on to accomplish remarkable things. But here's the problem. If unity produces such remarkable results, why is unity so quick to disappear? If it can do all of these amazing things, why does it disappear so fast? Where is the unity in our country that was present 20 years ago that produced remarkable results? Where's the unity of teams that one year win the whole championship and then the next year they fall apart? One of the main reasons unity crumbles is because it wasn't real. You know, teammates will, will stand up for each other. They don't or shouldn't throw each other under the bus. They, they demonstrate this united front, but is their unity real? Do they truly care about each other? Are they truly united? Or is their unity fabricated? Is a unity that is put on while it's necessary or advantageous for themselves? The overwhelming majority is the latter. It's, it's a unity that's self-serving. How do we know that? Well, when that player gets traded, all of a sudden, all those, those teammates that were off, off, you know, you couldn't say anything bad about them, all of a sudden, he has a lot of opinions about them. When that team that was winning starts losing, all of a sudden, that unity that they were demonstrated starts to fall apart. Why? Because the unity wasn't real. And if unity is not real, it doesn't last. Another reason unity crumbles is because it wasn't rooted on something solid. What was the basis of our unity in this country 21 years ago? Think about what really united our country after 9-11. And I'm not saying that this is, was the case for everyone. I'm just saying generally. What was the name of the war that we started? It was the War on Terror. The unity of our nation was a unity rooted in fear. The foundation of our unity was terror. That's an incredibly powerful unifier. But what happens? Eventually, either the fear goes away or the fear is numbed with time, and so then the foundation of the unity is gone, and so therefore also is the unity. If it's rooted in something that's not solid, when that foundation gets removed, so does the unity. If unity is not rooted on the right foundation, it doesn't last. So yes, the results of unity are remarkable, but the unity, if it's not rooted and if it isn't real, it won't last. It won't produce those results. So here's the question. What does this have to do with us? How does this apply to us? How does this affect us. In our passage this morning, we are finishing up Christ's prayer. These are Christ's last words in his last moments with his disciples before proceeding to the cross. It is in this moment that Christ turns his attention to us. And do you know what Christ prays for? 
as he is in this final moment and he prays for us, what does he ask? He prays to the Father and asks that we would be one. He prays for unity. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we dive in, I'd like to ask a favor. This is a message that's going to require a lot of self-evaluation. We're not going to reach the end of this message, and I'm not going to give you ten questions to ask yourself, five little checkpoints for you to evaluate unity, and then you can say, oh, I'm good, I finished Stephen's questionnaire, we're, we're okay. No, this is a message that is going to require much deep consideration, much self-evaluation. In order for this passage to impact you, it requires that you search your heart. So what is the state of unity or disunity among believers? How's unity doing? How's unity doing generally? Consider the state of the capital C church, the church as it is spread out across this world. How's the unity doing? Is it real? Is it rooted on the right foundation? Is it producing remarkable results? But more than just the church at large, let's bring this home. Let's make this really practical for us. How's unity doing? How's unity doing personally? Where's your unity out? Think about your own life. Think about the unity we are meant to have with the people in this room. How's your unity on that level? Is it real? Is it genuine or is it put on? Is it rooted on the right foundation or on the world's foundations? Is it a unity that's producing remarkable results? As we go through this final part of Christ's prayer, I I want us to consider these things and evaluate the quality of unity among believers. Evaluate the quality of your unity with your brothers and sisters. Here's our big idea. Real Christian unity that is rooted on the right foundation produces remarkable results. Real Christian unity that is rooted on the right foundation produces remarkable results. Let's look at John 17 verse 20. On your handout, um, I put on the back a, a chart we're not, I'm not going to be going back and forth through the chart, but that was just something that as I was looking through this of just understanding the different categories of what Christ does as he's praying. And so as we're going through, don't be waiting, oh, when's Stephen going to uh, uh, refer to this? I'm not going to. But as we're going, you can see these patterns of what Christ is doing. So let's look at the very beginning. Let's see what does Christ at, pray. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word. There's two surprising and astounding truths in this first verse. Two things that that when we look at this, that that surprise us and, and we question, why is this here? The first surprising and astounding truth is who Christ is praying for. 
Who does Jesus take time in this moment to stop, pause, and pray for? Jesus prays for us. I do not ask for these only. The these only are the disciples that he prayed for from verses 6 through 19. He prayed for them. He's not praying only for them, though. He also prays for those who will believe in me. Well, who's Jesus talking about? All those who will believe in him in the future. All those who will be called by the Father and respond through faith. Who is that? Us. If you are a believer in Christ and have placed your faith in him, Jesus is praying for you in this passage. How should that impact us? What difference should it make in our lives that Jesus pauses to pray for us? I think the first way that it should impact us is that we should be comforted. What's happening in this moment? What's happening at this time? As we've been going through and leading up to this time, we've been talking about this moment in history, this time that Christ is in, that this is the hour of glorification. Is this an easy hour? Is this a light moment? Is this insignificant? Is Jesus praying, you know what? I can't sleep right now. I've got some insomnia. I can't sleep. You know what I'll do? I'll just pray for different believers. Hmm, let me think of different believers. Uh, well, I've prayed for the disciples, but there's only 11 of those. You know what? Let me just pray for all future believers. Right? Like, I've done that when I'm, I'm tired. I'm like, I can't sleep. Let, let me just start praying for some people. Is that the moment that Christ chooses to pray for us? No. This is a heavy and monumental moment. This is the culminating hour of history. This is the hour that all prior, his prior his history was waiting for. This is the hour that all following history looks back on. And that's the moment that he chose to pray for us. Let that sink in. In his final moments with his followers before being captured, bruised, mocked, scorned, and crucified, Christ considered us, and he prayed for us. Let it sink in that Christ's ministry of intercession for us began moments before the cross. Do you know what that is? That's a comfort. That Christ in this moment, the hardest moment that he would face, pauses to pray for us is comforting. And this comfort should unite us. L look around you. Go ahead. Do you see other believers next to you? In the moments before the cross, Jesus prayed for them. In the moments leading up to it, he considered them and prayed for them just like he considered and prayed for you. Does that not unite us? Does that not draw us together to know that in his final moments, Christ prayed for not just me, he prayed for us? first way it should impact us is that we should be comforted. The second and way that it should impact us is that we should pay attention. 
any of Christ's prayers warrant our attention. We've learned from Christ's prayer the first two parts of this prayer in chapter 17. We've learned from other times that Christ prays. But this one is specifically about us. And if we know it's about us, what should we be doing? Paying attention. Wait, wait, Jesus is praying about me? I don't know if you've ever been part of different prayer groups. And let's just be honest, our minds tend to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And in that moment, but what perks our attention when someone says your name? Lord, I want to pray for Stephen. Oh, what? Oh, yeah, hmm? listening. Christ is praying for us. This should perk our ears. We should be paying attention. What exactly does he pray for? So the first astounding and surprising truth in this verse is that Christ prays for us. That should both comfort us. It should prick our ears. It should cause us to be united in that he does this for not just me, but for all of us. But the second surprising and astounding truth is that we are here because of the ministry of the first disciples. Look at the end of verse 20. I ask also for those who will believe in me through their word. Wait, what does Jesus say? Whose word was instrumental in our belief? Their word. Is that a typo? Did, did someone not translate this? Maybe the Greek is a little confusing here. What? Their word? I mean, Jesus is praying to the Father, and we know his word, so why doesn't Jesus say they believe through your word? But he doesn't. He says, those who will believe in me through their word. Well, whose word is Jesus talking about that was instrumental in our belief? Whose word is this? Let's look at the context. Who did Jesus pray for immediately before praying for us? Disciples. Jesus prayed for the disciples. And look what he said. Go back, if you have your Bible, to verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the word world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus gave the Father's word to the disciples. Christ had the Father's word. Christ gave that word to the disciples. Okay, well that's great. But, but shouldn't it still be praying for your word? Meaning now we receive that. Well, but what does Jesus then commission the disciples to do? Go to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And what is it that sanctifies? Your word. 
Christ commissions the first disciples. I, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. The ministry that Christ had to share the Father's word is now the ministry the disciples have to share the word of Christ. So how should this second astounding and amazing truth impact us? First, be amazed. Some of you love history and family trees. And, and you can start talking and say, man, I can trace back my heritage all the way back to uh, the Mayflower, or I can go all the way back to these uh, people in, in England, and, and this is tracing, or we've done, um, uh, what is it, 23andMe, and, and I know my ancestry comes from all of this. And those things are fascinating. And they often cause a sense of unity. Whoa, we're related. What's far more amazing is the heritage we have in Christ. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? We have believed through their word. There is a direct line that traces from you throughout all of history all the way back to the first disciples and from those first disciples to Christ and from Christ to the Father. It's interesting, for some of you, others not, to look at family trees and all those things. How fascinating will it be when we are in heaven and God traces out, oh, let me show you how my word got to you. Let me trace this out. What should that cause? Unity. We have something that has been handed down generation after generation. And I'm not talking about blood generations. I'm talking about spiritual generations. We can trace it back all the way to the disciples. Be amazed. But part of why that should be amazing to us is because it also should convict and commit us to the mission. What never ceases to surprise me is that Christ chooses to use sinners to accomplish his mission. Don't get me wrong. God is the only one who truly does and guarantees the work. Our salvation is in Christ. Our sealing is in the Spirit. Our security is in the sovereign God. God guarantees the work, but how does he choose to accomplish it? Through sinners. This is the pattern you will find on every page of scripture. Go back to the garden. Whose fault what is, is all of this? Our fault. Who rebelled against the Father? We did. Who disrupted this perfect creation? We did. Who does God give a promise and say that he will bring redemption through? Us. What does he say to Eve? The seed of the woman. If there was any, any people that should not be included in the plan, it would be the ones that caused everything to break. And yet in that moment, he says, hey, I'm still going to do this through you. And then the Old Testament, we get to start tracing out that line. 
Okay, wh where does this promise go? And it progresses and progresses and progresses until we arrive at the seed of the woman, until we arrive at the true seed, the true and better Adam. We arrive at Christ, the sinless man who saves us. But we arrived there through sinners. And where does it continue now? Yes, Christ did a perfect work, but how is that work continued? Who does Christ commission? Sinners. That's a surprising thing. If we have a perfect God, if we have a perfect word, why would he choose to use us? Because it glorifies him. That should convict us and also help us be committed to this mission because that's how it happens. How are we here? What would happen if, if we could trace out this line of what has happened and brought and there has been unity over the centuries of progressing and taking the word forward and it gets to us and we say, we're done. We're not going to keep the pattern going. God, this is on you. You figure it out. No, God chooses to work through us. Be convicted and committed for this is our purpose. We are united in that all of us have the same purpose. All of us are commissioned to continue the same task that Christ himself began and gave to his first disciples and then those disciples passed it on. It is astounding and surprising both that Christ prays for us and that we are here as a result of the first disciples' ministry. That should lead to unity because it is true for all believers. But let's continue to the next verse. Because here Jesus has shown us who he is praying for. Now let's look at what he prays for. Verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus prays for our unity. I don't know about you, but that seems like an odd request given everything that's happening in that moment. Given everything that is happening in that moment, why does Jesus stop and pray for unity? Like, there's other topics that we talk about that just seem a little bit more significant. Jesus prays for unity because God is a God of unity. We were created to reflect God. How do we know that? Because when God created mankind, he said that we were created in his image. We are meant to bear his image. What that means is that we are to be like him. If God is a God of love, we are to be loving. If God is a God of holiness, we are to be holy. If God is a God of unity, we are to be a people united. But it goes deeper than this because just being, it's not just one of God's attributes. See, how, what, what did God create us in, in that he says that we were created in whose image? Whose image are we created in? God's image, plural or singular. How does God describe that? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness at the moment we were created what was demonstrated perfect unity Christ, god created us out of his 
perfect unity. God created us to reflect that unity. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Since before time began, Christ has experienced the perfect unity of the Trinity. And it is precisely that unity that Christ uses to describe the unity he desires for us. Look at the next part. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. What kind of unity does Christ desire for his followers? What is the quality of this unity? What should it look like? It should look like the same kind of unity experienced between Christ and the Father. Let that sink in. If you're thinking and you're doing a self-evaluation and you're giving yourself an easy pass on unity because, well, I take a meal to people when they're sick, is that the unity that Christ calls us to? Is that the unity? Well, we know that God and Jesus love each other because they have a potluck every once in a while. That's not the unity that this is describing. This is the unity that the example of the unity, the model, the quality of it, should be the unity of the Trinity. For us to understand that, we must understand the unity that Christ has already demonstrated with the Father. Just think back to what we've seen of some of the relationship just in the Gospel of John. Was their unity real? Yes. The whole Gospel of John begins with their unity. The Word was God and the Word was with God. Their unity was real. Was it rooted on the right foundation? Yes. How often do we see that what Christ does is based on his relationship with the Father? I do this because the Father gave this to do me to do. I do this because I love the Father. His relationship, his unity was rooted on that. Did it produce remarkable results? Yes. It not only created us, it redeemed us and will one day glorify us. That's the unity that we're called to. It is the unity of the Father. And I want you to notice specifically the unity that Christ is describing. It's a unity of mutual abiding. The Father in him and him in the Father. Let's go back to the evaluation. Is the unity you have with other believers the same as the unity Christ has with the Father? Are we united with other followers of Christ to that degree? Because that's what Christ is praying for. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. We are called to be united because God is a God of unity. Our unity is meant to be real just as the unity between the Father and the Son is real. Our unity is meant to be rooted in a relationship just as the Father and their Son's unity is rooted in that relationship. Our unity is meant to produce remarkable results. And what is one of those results? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Have you ever thought that that was one of the results of unity? Have you ever thought that, man, the way that I treat and interact with other believers will reveal Christ's identity? That's what Christ wants. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I don't think that right here Jesus is purely talking about a saving belief. 
One of the things that we've seen in Christ's ministry in the Gospel of John is that there's two types of people. There are those who receive Christ, and there are those that reject Christ, but they all saw Christ. What Jesus said earlier, I think, uh, in chapter 15, is that in his coming, some were saved, but others, their condemnation, their excuse, their excuses were removed because they saw him and rejected him. Both of those are results that are remarkable. Both of those are part of the Father's plan. When Christ came, he wasn't 50% successful. He was 100% successful in that some saw him and believed, others saw him and rejected him. Both of those are part of the Father's plan. And we accomplish that plan through our unity so that the world may believe that you sent me. What, What does this mean? Our unity should be so compelling that the world can't explain it. If you think of any other group of unity, if you had enough time, if you had enough information, you could explain where the unity came from. Oh, well, they're united because they have similar hobbies. They're united by race. They're united by backgrounds. They're united by common interests. They're united in in all of these other things. Given enough time, you'd be able to explain it. That should not be the case for the world when they look at the church if the answer is not Christ. Our unity should be so surprising that when the world looks at it, they say the only way that this makes sense is if Jesus is who he said he was. What a shame that so often the unity that is presented to the church is easily, the unity of the church that is presented to the world is easily explained. It's easily dismissed. Well, of course they're united. Look at them. They're all the same. Of course they're united. They do these things that everyone likes. Of course they're united. They have food every week. No, it should be, I, I don't know why they're united. Think of the disciples. Do you think that that group spending time together and choosing to die together made sense to the world? No. Wait a second. You're a zealot and you're a tax collector? You, you're blue-collar fishermen, you're white-collar, you, you guys are friends, your politics are different, your backgrounds are different. How does this work? Wait a second, you persecuted them? Their friends died because of you and now you love each other? Can you explain that? Not without Christ. How does unity accomplish this? It accomplishes this result when the only explanation for the unity seen is the unity that comes from Jesus. So let's continue. It says in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus ultimately is repeating his earlier request. It follows the same pattern. But there's a slightly different approach. Jesus says that he has given us the glory that the Father first gave to him. What is this glory? There are a lot of different views and opinions about this. I'm going to share mine. This is the glory of the Father's revelation. What did Jesus come to do? He came to reveal the Father's glory. 
John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen the glory of the Father because the Father revealed it through the Son. And Christ gives us that glory. He gives us that revelation. We now can see the glory of the Father because of the Son. Now, this is not the full display of the glory. We're still waiting for that day. But the fact that we can see any of the glory after we had been separated from God and could no longer see it, the fact that we can see it is because it was revealed. Christ revealed that. And how was it revealed to us? From others. Christ gave us this glory. But even though we received glory from Christ, we cannot glorify God through our unity on our own. It must be through Christ. Look what it says. That they may be one, even as we are one. Again, there's the qualifier. What type of unity? Even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. We talked about mutual abiding, that Christ abides in the Father, the Father abides in Christ. That is their unity. If we want perfect unity, we also need a mutual abiding. Us in Christ and Christ in us. This is the foundation that removes condemnation. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises that God would dwell with man, but it's even greater than we could have ever hoped because God does not just dwell with us. God dwells in us. If you're looking and you're hearing so far, oh, I just need to work harder for unity, you've missed the point. And I'm not pointing a finger because I miss the point all the time. How is this unity perfected? It's perfected through Christ's presence in us. He gave them the right to become children of God. That's what we have in Christ. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in them, that they may become perfectly one. How are we perfectly one? When Christ is abiding in us, when it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. If the world wants to look at our unity and they say that is a human fabricated unity, then they can explain it. If my unity is based on my action, it's explainable. But if my unity is perfected because of the indwelling of Christ, it can't be explained other than through Christ. Is this the foundation of our unity? Are we rooted in the foundation of our relationship with Christ? Real Christian unity that is rooted on the right foundation produces remarkable results. Please look at the result. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This verse expands on the previous verse in that it gives us two things the world will know. Like the previous verse, the world will know that the Father sent the Son. Because the type of unity we are meant to display is only possible through Christ. Therefore, when they see that type of unity, the only thing that it will do, it will reveal Christ's identity. If Christ didn't come, we could never display the kind of unity Christ prays for. But the other remarkable result is that it reveals the Father's love for his followers. Now, I need to just explain some of the grammar here because we have a pronoun, and, and we can wonder, wait, 
what pronoun is this referring, what group is this referring to? Because it says, you loved them. Who's the them? The one way of reading it would be to see the pronoun as referring to the world. And it would read like this, that the world may know you loved the world even as you loved me. Now, part of that seems to make sense because God does love the world. John 3.16, the Father loved the world. But here's the question. Does God love the world the same way he loved the Son? He doesn't. What I mean is not the quality or type of his love. What I'm talking about is that he lavishes his love on the Son. He gives everything to the Son. He loves the Son in that way. And while he does love the world, he does not love the world the way he loves the Son. Who is that love reserved for? Those who are children of God because of Christ. When we are united with Christ, all of the promises to Christ then become promises for us. That's the thing that we get. And so this is what it would read as. I in, if we would go and look at going back to verse 23, the different pronouns, I in believers and you in me, that believers may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved believers even as you loved me. Because remember, the result does not necessarily mean that the world will come to a saving faith. But what our unity should always reveal is both that Christ is who he said he was and that the Father has lavished his love on his followers. For us to have an element of unity where someone looks and says, the only way I can explain that is if Christ is who he said and that God really loves them. That's the only way I can explain that unity. So let's make this again practical because while I was studying this, I, I, I had numerous different applications that came to my mind. Numerous different ideas or, or asides I was going to take time to address. Um, I even talked with you, with some people in passing. I was going to have this whole aside about um, social media and how social media often destroys the wrong, destroys the right kind of unity and promotes the wrong kind of unity. I was going to talk about different examples of, of a compelling community of people who go when we have better attendance at funerals than at parties. Talk about different choices that we make and, and, and different things, what really unites us. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to add a list of applications because in doing that, I think one of the dangers is it would either seem like a personal attack it could seem as something easily explained away. Wait a second, you don't really understand my situation. I'm doing okay on unity. I don't need to do that. Or it could seem like easy results and success. Oh, well, as long as I finish this, I'm okay. Here's the thing. Does Christ give negative examples of, oh, it shouldn't be a unity like this? Does Christ say, here's the five steps to unity? No. What does Christ give? An example. This is the type of unity. That might not seem like much of an application, so, so this is my request. Self-evaluation. Where are you at? 
What is God convicting you of right now? Let's be honest. If you search your heart and you ask yourself, what ways is my Christian unity not real? What ways is my Christian, Christian unity not rooted on the right foundation? What ways is my Christian unity not producing remarkable results? If you ask those questions, honestly, there is not a person in this room that will not realize failure. You can't. Because what was the example Christ's unity with the Father. I don't care how good you are at unity, you're not that good. So where is Christ putting the burden on you? Where is the unity that is lacking in your life? But now let me give some, some hope. Because again, if you did that, then, then the result is failure. But where does Christ turn to now? Christ gives us the comfort of his grace in the promise of his presence even in light of our failures. Look what he says in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Did Christ know we would fail? Did Christ know that our unity would often be unreal, unrooted, and unremarkable? Did Christ know that? He did. Did Christ still pray that we would be with him? He did. And how does he act? Ask the Father. Is it begrudgingly? Is it, does he turn to the Father and say, Father, these people are rebels. These people, even though I suffered and died for them, continually disregard my commands. These people squabble and bicker, bicker over the silliest things and tear apart the church. Father, bring these people to me so I can teach them a lesson. Let them see our glory so that it scorches their eyes and shames their hearts. Seems reasonable for him to pray that, but that's not what he says. What he says is, Father, I desire that they would be with me. Father, I, I know that they are going to fail time and time again. Father, I know that their unity won't be real at times. It won't be rooted. It won't produce the results that we really want. But Father, I still desire that they would be with me. What is that? That's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. This is what ought to motivate our transformation. I'm not asking you to search your heart or else. I'm not saying be united or else God's going to smite you. I'm saying be united because God has demonstrated grace. Be united because Christ has saved you. Be united because he loves you. And what does he want? Why does he want us to be with him? So that we could see his glory. This is what we were made for, to see his glory. We were created to be recipients of his love and worshipers of his glory. Oh, how marvelous his grace that would desire our presence even in light of our failures. His mercy is more. Our sins are many. 
Christ then says to the Father, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. He says, righteous Father, because the world looks and says, he's not righteous. How can you send sinners to hell? So many who don't receive you, how can you still do that? But Christ knows that the Father is righteous because the reason they go to hell is not because God is like, oh, well, let me just choose. No, it's because they rejected him. Their condemnation remains. Father, I know you, and these know that you sent me. And then he finishes his prayer. And I want to just share something that was very encouraging to me in the way that Christ finishes his prayer. Because last words matter. Last words, especially if they're words that you know are to be your last words. When we started this series, we had taken a break from the Gospel of John to do uh, some other things, and when we came back to it, we started in John 13, because John 13 begins this, this period of Christ's private ministry with his disciples. This is the conclusion of that ministry. And what Christ has done is he has prepared his disciples to live for him even when he will no longer be with them. And when we started back in 13, we said, God, Christ wants them to know certain things and to do certain things. But what he wanted them to know where he started is where he ends. The Gospel of John, John, the author, introduces the section the way the section ends. And I want to show you that. This is how it starts in John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Father, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knew it was the hour to depart. He knew that wouldn't require his sacrifice. He knew that he would be tortured. He knew they would betray him. He knew they would deny him. But having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then what does he pray at the very end? I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Begins and ends with love. Father, I want them to know that I love them, that my love is in them. That is what unites us. The foundation of our unity is the love of Christ. That we have believed in him and have received the love of the Father in us, the love of the Son. O righteous Father, may you work in us that we would live in a way that is worthy of such love. May we rise to Christ's call of real Christian unity that is rooted on the right foundation and produces remarkable results.